That's what you would call a not smooth transition. <laughs> I want to welcome you here. I'm not sure if we've blown some speakers. I can. F it sounds a little funky now. Are we okay now? Maybe. <laughs> um, first of all, I want to welcome you here. And uh, a couple things I want to mention. Um, starting next weekend uh, is uh, the, the North American Baptist Conference is putting on an event called Triennial. Triennial is, uh, an, is, an, is a conference that happens every three years. And uh, three years ago, it, was happening, it happened in Edmonton. And uh, this year, though, because of COVID, it's happening online. And so it is open to anyone. And so we want to invite you to come and be a part of that so you can kind of hear what's happening uh, in the life of, of our North American Baptist Conference. And there's going to be all kinds of uh, main speakers, but there's also breakouts of a variety of different uh, topics. And uh, so one of the, the best way to sign up would be to go online at, at nabtriennial.com, nabtriennial.com. And, uh, and you'll, be, you'll see some of the different conferences, some of the different speakers, uh, some of the different topics that are being explored and discussed online. And, uh, and would, would encourage you to check that out. There's no expectation that you participate in all of it. Uh, if there's just one or two that are of interest to you, I uh, would love, love it if you come and check that out and, uh, and want to invite you to be a part of that. Um, something I want to mention as well, just related to that, um, because the, kind of the, the, the main, main event of that particular weekend happens on Sunday morning, uh, we're going to offer a watch party here at the church at 9 a.m. And so if you want to come, uh, we're going to have a space designated for us to come and worship with other NAB, church, NAB churches from around the world and, uh, and with different individuals, missionaries, that sort of thing. And so um, we want to, to invite you to come and join us here at the church at 9 o'clock next Sunday. Um, part of the reason why I want to make this available and invite you to be a part of that is uh, over the last six months or so, our leadership has just really been sensing that God is stirring uh, in our church. And we want to encourage you, we want to invite you to be a part of those breakout sessions, be part of, those, um, part of that discerning process for us as we, begin to, as we are at, continuing to ask the question, Lord, what are, you, what are you doing in our city? Where are you moving in our city? And how can we be a part of that? And it's, it's, I'm just really excited about what this next season of, of ministry, what this, se what this next season of life is going to look like for our church. And want to invite you to be a part of that and, and to, to, uh, to listen with us. And part of that will be uh, hearing what, what God is doing around the world through the NAB. Uh, so it's just, yeah, really exciting and want to invite you to be a part of that. If you have questions, you can obviously chat with me as well after the service. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful to be able to, to worship you and to be able to uh, discern, to be able to listen to your word, to celebrate your goodness. We thank you for the worship team, for their, their, their leading in uh, with us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir in us a longing for your spirit. So God, so God this morning, we pray that you would breathe a fresh new life into each of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue our series called Donkeys, Babies, and Bears, Oh My, we will be exploring yet another moment in history that somehow we are left wondering how that got in there. How did this section of scripture make it in the Bible? And so in light of that, I, I thought I'd show a few photos 
of moments where you have to ask, how did that get in there? What was like this first one? Hopefully it worked. There it goes. Like that car. How did it make it through the roof? Or, or this little guy here. Maybe. There we go. Poor little guy. He's got stuck with his head in the rails there. Or maybe this one. This horse. I love technology. <laughs> good, good. There it is. I'm not sure how that is even possible. Or this next one, the mountain goat. How did it, how did it get there? How is that possible? Or the next one. How, did, how is it possible for a cat to get into that space? I don't, I'm not sure. And then our, I think it's our last one here. A car that's 25 feet up into the air. I'm not sure how that got in there. Last week, though, we explored the book of Numbers, chapter 22, where we read about how a donkey was able to identify the presence of God as Balaam was defiant against God. And we realized that perhaps that story is in the Bible to show us the importance of walking with awareness of God in our lives and how God can use any of us at any given time. This week, though, we'll be looking at another portion of Scripture that I think will likely force us to ask the same question. Why is that in the Bible? In fact, I suspect that for many of us, as I read this story, you likely didn't even know that this story was in the Bible. Yet somehow this story made the cut when it came to God's Word, so why? Why is it in there? Before I read the section of Scripture that we're going to read from, from 2 Kings, I want to give a little bit of context here to um, to what's going on, just to kind of set the stage in terms of the setting, the environment that, is, that we are reading about. In order to do that, we actually have to go back about 700 years to 15th century BC, where the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III gathered his army to address a growing rebellion just outside the city of Megiddo in nearby Palestine. As the Egyptians advanced on the Palestinians, they, they retreated safely into the confines of their walled city of Megiddo, where they could defend themselves safely. Now, often it wasn't uncommon for cities like Megiddo to, to use moats or rivers or, or, or build enormous walls to defend themselves. Ultimately, that would ensure that enemies would, help, would, would keep them out. But with, so with rations getting low and depleted manpower, often the, the, the attacking, attacking militaries would have very few options that would lead to success. And in, so in the end, the cost-benefit analysis from the invading armies just didn't make it worthwhile for them to stick around. Unfortunately, for the Palestinians in this case, the Egyptians, they chose a different option. They decided we were, we were going to wait them out. This is actually the first recorded occasion where this type of military operation was implemented. Today we call it a siege, where the attacking military would actually surround a city and, and then they would begin just to, to wear down the insides of the, the, peop the people inside. Often the resulting strategy would be to see who could outweigh the other. Wait, let me try that again. Who could outweigh the other? It became a war of attrition more than anything else. For the people inside the fortified walls of the city, it was a defensive strategy 
waiting to see whether they had enough resources and resolve to outlast the invading enemy. Often the attacking army would cut off any incoming food rations. They would cut off the water supply. And so they would block the rivers or they would try to reroute the water supply and different water systems, preventing fresh water from entering into the city. Now the thought process here was that once the people inside ran out of resources, that they would eventually have to surrender as a matter of survival. Unfortunately, most of the time when the city is under siege, the atrocities that happen inside the walls are horrendous. Disease would run rampant as people died from the ongoing attacks, the lack of clean water, and proper sanitation. Both military and civilian deaths were constantly happening. And with the dwindling supply of food, starvation wasn't uncommon. And often in people's desperations, they would resort to eating anything that they could find. Now, unfortunately, this strategy by the Egyptians in 15th century BC was so effective that other militaries put this into practice as well. That's what's happening here in 2 Kings chapter 6 in the city-state of Samaria. Samaria is under siege by the king of Aram. And so let's read from 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24 to 31. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So there was a severe famine in Samaria, and behold, they kept besieging it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of, fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord the king. But he said, if the Lord does not help you, from where am I to help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Then the king said to her, what is on your mind? And, he, and she said, this woman said to me, give your son so that we may eat him today. And we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son so that we may eat him. But she's hidden her son. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his clothes and he, was passed, and he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth underneath on his body. Then he said, May God do so to me and more so, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Yikes. What a tragic, awful story. So how did that get in there? How did that get in the Bible. Just like in Megiddo, the Samaritans are under siege. They've been pinned down and their situation was deteriorating rapidly. Disease and death and starvation. What's happening here is Jeremiah, the author of this book, is trying to shock us. He's trying to paint a picture of just how horrendous the conditions are inside the walls. For example, we read in the story that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels. Now a, donkey's, a donkey in particular, this is of note here, that in Levitical law was considered an unclean animal. But a donkey's head was even worse. It was the worst part that anyone would ever consider eating, especially a Jew. But here it was, being sold for 80 shekels so they would have something to eat. 
as if that wasn't bad enough, the merchants inside had inflated the prices so much that no one could afford to eat it even if they wanted to. But if that was too expensive, you could buy dove dung instead. Some translations use the word seed pods for only five shekels. Seed pods is just a more tactful way of saying pigeon poop. But just to give you an idea of the conversion rate that's happening for us today, it would be one shekel equals a day's wage. So one shekel equals one day's worth of work. Which means that 80 shekels would be almost three months worth of work for a donkey's head, or a week's worth of work for a quarter pound bag of bird poop. So, let's take this a little bit farther. Let's work under the assumption of minimum wage in Alberta, $15 an hour. Eight hours of work, multiply that by 80 days. That would mean that a donkey's head would cost about $10,000 to give us an idea, or $600 for a bag of delicious seed pods. So you could spend three months' worth of wages for a donkey's head or a week's, a week's worth of wages for a quarter-pound bag of poo, both of which are quite unlikely. What's happening here is Jeremiah is trying to help us understand how awful the situation is for the Samaritans. This is a tragic, tragic situation unfolding inside the walls of Samaria. But it gets worse. The story then culminates with this tragic and horrendous situation of a grieving mother. We're going to call her Mom A, just for the sake of simplicity. Mom A was in such a dire situation that she makes an agree agreement with another mother. We'll call her Mom B. That they would eat their children in order to survive. Now, the reality is, is that during a siege, cannibalism is actually not that uncommon. Now, generally when that cannibalism did happen under sieges, it was often bodies that were already dead that, they, that they would, people would consume. But in this particular case, it's even more tragic. When two moms agreed to eat their own children. We don't get any further information about who either of these moms are, nor do we ever hear from Mom B at all. It's kind of a blip in the, in the scripture, and then it's over. Part of me, though, wonders if Mom B really had any intention of eating her own child at all. Or out of her own desperation, she had premeditated a way to deceive and convince Mom A that they had really had no other choice. Reality is, is that desperate situations cause desperate people to do desperate things. Either way, though, Mom A agrees to the arrangement. Unfortunately for everyone involved, Mom B backs out of the agreement the next day when it's her turn to sacrifice her child. Admittedly, there is a moral dilemma in this story, I think. In one sense, our, her, our heart hurts for Mom A, who has now just eaten her own child. And we feel a sense of injustice for her. Because Mom B didn't keep up her end of the bargain. She's clearly been taken advantage of in the worst possible way. Yet her end of the bargain also includes eating a second child. So should we be enraged at the lack of honor from Mom B because she took advantage of Mom A in a desperate situation? Should we be grateful that Mom B didn't follow through with the plan and backed out of the agreement and actually spared the life of a second child? Or... 
Should we be grieved because of the immense guilt and shame and sorrow that Mom A is likely experiencing after killing and eating her own child? Or should we demand justice from Mom B's actions and denounce her actions and deception? I think the answer to all of these questions is, yeah. Yes. Yes, we should be enraged at the lack of honor from Mom B. Yes, we should be grateful that she backed out of the agreement and didn't eat a second child. Yes, we should grieve over the guilt and shame and sorrow that Mom A is experiencing. And yes, we should absolutely demand justice for Mom B's actions and denounce her deception. Do you feel the tension in this story? Do you feel the discomfort in this passage? It's a no-win scenario here. The tension in this story is that, is that both moms are victims of a situation and circumstance that has caused them to make decisions that are terrible and horrific and unimag unimaginable. And it's tragic, and it's messy, and it's just awful. There is an injustice that both moms are faced with in this incident that should leave us uncomfortable and grieved, which is actually a good thing. Anytime we know that injustice has occurred in the world, it absolutely should make us uncomfortable. Whether it's racism, mass graves, domestic abuse, child labor, famines around the world, workplace mistreatment, or any other injustices that happen on a regular basis in the world. These are things that are, that are avoidable and preventable, yet unfortunately, they still happen. So what do we do with that then? How do we navigate through the discomfort and properly address the injustices of this world? And I think this is exactly what the king of Israel is dealing with or wrestling with right now. Because his first response to mom A's situation is appropriate. Verse 30, it says, he immediately rips his clothes. In that culture, ripping of the clothes was a sign of grief, of deep anguish and distress. And we see this happening throughout the Bible where they would grab their collars and tear about six inches of their shirt. The king is, is physically expressing this pain that most of us are experiencing when we read this story. We recognize this story is horrendous. And he's physically reacting to it. There is a grief here that the king entered into with this woman. And he affirmed her pain and actually entered into her sorrow with her as well. In the midst of, of his sorrow and grief and pain for Mom A, it immediately, he immediately shifts gears or shifts focus and it, it evokes a reaction of anger and outrage. The king's response here, <coughs> excuse me, the king's response here is to look for someone to blame. He doesn't blame Mom A. He knows that she's a victim of, of injustice. He doesn't blame Mom B. He can look around and see in Samaria, it's a, it's a disaster. Now, there does he blame himself as the king who is responsible for surrendering or, or fighting. Instead, because of Elisha's proximity to God, Elisha becomes the lightning rod for the king's accusations. The king knows that, that if, the, if anyone had the power to do something miraculous like provide food and water for the Samaritans, it would have to be Elisha. 
The king knows that Elisha had performed all kinds of miraculous events involving food and water. Just read the previous six chapters of 2 Kings, and, go, and Elisha does all kinds of miracles with food and water. He knows how to do it. It's happened before. Surely if he or God wanted to help the Samaritans, they would have done something. And in the eyes of the king, the entire scenario becomes a question of Elisha's character as to how this situation could have happened and why Elisha let it get this far. Clearly, Elisha was to be blamed for their circumstances and indirectly for the death of this innocent child. We know in the following verses, though, I didn't read them for us, but in the following verses, Elisha locks the door to his house to prevent the king's people from coming in. Eventually, the king composes himself and, and comes to his right mind and realizes, I've made a rash decision and, and, and withdraws his death sentence of Elisha. Elisha knows here that although the king's anger is real, that it's legitimate, that it is valid, that this rash death sentence was a reaction to injustice instead of a response. And we know that happens, right? We've seen it plenty of times in the last 12 months when hurting and angry people don't know what to do with their hurt and anger. One of the many challenges of injustice around the world is that sometimes we don't always know how to respond appropriately or, or adequately to injustice. For some, the response to injustice is an eye for an eye. As long as someone suffers for what they've done, then I'm good. As, something, as long as something is damaged or there's some sort of reparation that equals my suffering, then we're good. For others, it's total amnesty and forgiveness, and we shrug it off and say, oh, it could have been worse, and move on with our lives. And yet for others, like the king of Israel, we look to blame someone else. Say it's, it's their fault. It's the system's, system's fault. Someone else is another group that's the problem. Jesus, though, offers an alternative response to injustice through the sermon, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's significant statements that Jesus makes that I think really focus on the area of injustice and actually give us some clarity in terms of how we, should, how we need to respond to injustice. Matthew 5.39, he says, I say to you, do not show opposition to an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek Turn the other toward him also. Now, this passage I don't think is an argument for pacifism. Or just to simply allow yourself to be a punching bag of abuse and just keep on taking injustices. Jesus here, I think, is saying that we willingly choose to resist taking justice into our own hands. And we willingly reject the opportunity for personal retaliation. This is a tremendously difficult teaching. How are we supposed to turn, how are we supposed to just turn the other cheek when someone has done something wrong to us? How is that mom supposed to turn the other cheek when this has happened to her? Peter, though, writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. And he says, For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For, for to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. These are the words of Peter. Peter, the guy who, when Jesus was being, being treated unjustly, responds by cutting off the servant's ear. That's Peter's response to injustice. That's the kind of justice I want when someone does something wrong to me. Revenge. But something has changed in Peter in order for him to write these words. Instead, Peter says, look to Jesus rather than yourself and your situation. Because Jesus actually sets an example for us that models what turning the other cheek looks like. In fact, Jesus takes it a step farther in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 24, while Jesus is on the cross. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And I think Jesus is saying two really important things to us here as it relates to our response to injustices. first one is that forgiveness is critical. That it is absolutely necessary in the midst of injustice. Just to be clear, that's a process that's much longer than I have time to give today. But forgiveness is important. Second is this. Jesus says they know not what they do. Jesus here is recognizes that inherent in who we are as people, that we have a capacity for a tremendous amount of evil. That there is a sickness inside all of us called sin that causes us to think and do and treat others terribly at times. And unfortunately, because of that sin, the brokenness of this world has kept people blind to their own actions. To the point where they almost just where we can sometimes justify what we're doing whether it's governments or religions or just individuals. Jesus experienced injustice from all three, and it continues today. Now, it doesn't make it right or justify it in any way, but it does help us understand, help us to identify why unjust things happen. We know that injustice is actually just evidence of a brokenness in this world. So I don't think that we should be surprised when we hear about injustice in the world. Nor should we be surprised when injustice happens to us. The broken world we live in is doing exactly what a broken world is expected to do. Do broken things. A broken watch doesn't tell time the way it's supposed to. A broken radio doesn't play music like we expect it to. A broken microphone doesn't sound as good as it's supposed to. A broken car doesn't drive the way it's designed to. There is a, a natural cause and effect relationship that exists in our broken and sinful world. We live in a broken world and it will reflect its brokenness in all kinds of ways. Jesus, though, in the midst of that brokenness, continues his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people 
Light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We resist the brokenness of this world and the injustices within it by showing an alternative. We resist self-preservation by showing self-sacrifice. We resist pride and arrogance with humility and love. We resist unforgiveness and self-justice with forgiveness and grace. Where we grieve over the brokenness of this world and we actually begin to show another way to live that's actually rooted in Jesus. And as we do that, we fight against injustice and resist evil by modeling ourselves after the character of Jesus, who at times turned the other cheek, who at other times flipped tables, and at other times forgave, and still other times he rebuked. Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We pray for God to transform lives, to change hearts, to rebuke in ways that we can't, to correct behaviors and to reconcile relationships. We pray because we choose to put our faith in Jesus and trust that God's brand of justice will be much better than anything you and I could ever conceive and that ultimately the unjust would turn to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. As we talk about and consider the various injustices in this passage, in this world, in our lives, what it shows me more than anything else is that injustice is a symptom that reveals the need that we all have for a Savior. Let me say that again. That injustice in this world is a symptom of the brokenness that exists in this world. And it shows us the need that we all have for a Savior. As I, as I conclude my message this morning, I want to end with a couple of thoughts. This morning, more than anything else, my hope is that for those of you that, who, who have experienced injustice, in whatever form that looks like, that you would know that there is comfort and healing and strength and restoration through Jesus Christ. I also want to be clear here that for anyone who is here or watching online, that if you have felt in any way that I've minimized your past experience of injustices, whether it was abuse or neglect, manipulation, deception, or any other form of injustice, I'd ask for your forgiveness. My, hope, my other hope is that for those of us who have been, inju- who have been inju- unjust, that we would turn away from those actions, that we would seek reconciliation and take responsibility for our actions, and ultimately know that hope, forgiveness, grace, and purpose can come through Jesus Christ as well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up as we transition to communion. Jesus says in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be, will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The only hope that we have in overcoming injustice is through Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have in healing from injustice is also through Jesus Christ. And the only hope that we have in forgiveness from being unjust is also through Jesus Christ. Jesus, on the night that he, night before he died on the cross, took the bread and the wine. And he didn't say, this bread and this wine is, is only for Baptists. He didn't say it's only for really good people or people who attend Thornhill Baptist Church. He picked up the bread and, and he said, this bread is a symbol of my love for each of you. And even though I know that you as people have the tendency to practice unjust behaviors, I still love you. Even though I will be treated unjustly by others, including you, very shortly, I still love you. And even though I know that humanity will continue to be unjust to each other, I still love them. And Jesus took the bread, and he broke it and said, this bread is my body, and I'm giving it up for each of you so that you will know healing and forgiveness, redemption, and peace. Take and eat. And Jesus took the wine. He said, this wine is a new covenant. New covenant in my blood. It's a symbol of a new way of life, a new way to think, and an alternative to a life of sin. An alternative to self-centeredness. An alternative to self-preservation. An alternative to unforgiveness. In fact, an alternative to religion. Instead, this is a new covenant in my blood rooted in relationship where the fullness of life is found. Take and drink. 